Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, the letter, really, of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 6. The sermon text is also printed for you in your bulletins on page 8. But again, if you prefer your own Bible or a pew Bible, we are in 1 John chapter 2 reading verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. We're continuing to look here at the letter of 1 John, and I mentioned in the first two weeks of our examination of this text that John is writing to us, or he was writing originally to his readers, uh, towards the end of the first century AD. And that was true both of his gospel, uh, which we were looking at previous to this letter, uh, and we'll pick up again closer uh, to Easter or, or right thereafter, uh, but also it's true of his letter. That he's writing at the end of the first century AD to a group of Christians who were tempted and who were influenced by the pervasive uh, philosophy of the day that was beginning to take root. And that philosophy or that way of thinking, which uh, grew much later into full form was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And it was a teaching that I mentioned you know, hijacked certain themes and realities of the Christian faith and, and used them uh, to support this false way of thinking. That when you examined it, and what I mean when I say it, I mean Gnosticism, it really um, looks a lot like the modern New Age movement today. That it sort of denied physical reality, it embraced this hierarchy of gods, it pointed us to this idea or this goal of, you know, kind of ethereal, uh, spiritual enlightenment. And again, it used some of the words and teachings of Jesus, but misapplied them to support this way of thinking. And so we saw that John, over and above this Gnostic understanding, began to correct the thinking of his hearers. And in the first chapter, which we looked at the past two weeks, in verses 1 through 4, he spoke specifically on who Jesus was in his person, a very physical person, and what he did. And then in verses 5 through 10, again, of of chapter 1, which was our second uh, week in this book, he focused a lot on what Jesus said, specifically his message. And so today, as we come into chapter 2, In these first six verses of chapter 2, John continues his argument. He continues his argument. 
And I encourage you to see it uh, really in four parts, and we're going to get to those four parts in a moment. But if you, uh, if you have a cell phone, which I think in, in this day and age everyone does, right? Everyone has a cell phone. You've heard of 4G coverage? Okay. 4G coverage. Uh, there's now, I think, even 5G out there, but 4G for a while was the best. You know, there was LTE, and there's 4G coverage, okay? Well, I want to look at this text and highlight four Gs, okay? Four G words. It's admittedly very cheesy, all right? But it actually works, and I, I promise, hopefully, you'll see that, okay? So in these first six verses, we see really four G concepts. And the first thing you'll notice in the text is that there is a goal. That's the first word. There's a goal. And we see this in verse 1. John tells us that his goal in writing is ultimately that we would not sin. That we would not sin. It's a lofty goal, (laughs) admittedly. But he says that. I am writing these things that you may not sin. If you notice, though, his admonition towards us is, is very pastoral and even, even you know, paternal or, or, or parental. Notice the language, my little children. And far from this being you know, condescending or far from this just being you know, this older guy telling you how it used to be back in his day, you know, the young whippersnappers, Okay, far from it being kind of that spirit, this is a loving, life-giving counsel. These are words of a, of a seasoned mentor, a seasoned disciple, soldier in the faith, uh, namely an apostle. I mean, you can think in your own life, think in your careers if you had somebody like that. Someone who had gone before you and then could guide you in the path that you're walking down in your career. Think in sports. If you played sports or you watched sports or you ever, you know, had kids in sports, you know, that, that seasoned coach, that decorated coach who could really teach you the basics and the mechanics and really bring you along again the path that you're trying to walk down. Whatever the image might be, that's what we see here with John, a seasoned apostle, a seasoned eyewitness to Christ toward the end of his life, really focusing on what matters really focusing on what matters and wanting to impart that then to those who are still behind him in the journey. Because again, he's an older man. John's at that age where, you know, he can say whatever he wants. Don't we all reach that age eventually? You know, we get so old, we can say whatever we want. It doesn't matter anymore, right? No filter, no social conventions, right? You can say whatever you want. You've earned that right. Okay, one comedian uh, says that, you know, that, that happens even when we drive when we get older, right? We all get to that point where eventually we just stop looking back. We're just going to back up out of the driveway. We're not looking anymore, all right? You just said that's, you, you, you kind of graduate to that point, right? You've earned that right. I've made it this far. Let's see if you can, all right? You're just backing up, all right? Well, that's John here. He's saying whatever he wants, but he's focusing on what really matters. And he's reflecting and he's, he's lovingly telling us really here in this text of the corrosive nature of sin. Again, he's lived enough life to realize that sin has this corrosive, enslaving nature that we don't often realize until we get older or until we have lived enough life. Because when we're younger, there's all those stereotypes that are true, right? 
that when we're younger, you know, lawlessness and rebellion against God and embracing the wrong thing, it almost has this appeal. There's a reason why we say, oh, you know, you should have seen him when he was younger. He was a real hellraiser, right? You should have seen her when she was younger. She was a real hellraiser, right? That, 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 that means something. When we're younger, we think that, man, we can do whatever we want, and this whole idea of submitting to God and authority and, and, and law, it, it's not for me. It's not for me. It's almost enticing. It's appealing. But as we get older, and as John begins to get older, and he's reflecting on his life, he begins to understand, again, that sin is, it might look good on the surface, but it's ultimately enslaving. It's corrosive. It, it shrinks our life. It doesn't expand it. It cheapens our life. That sin is ultimately a giving over of our life to things that are smaller than God. It's a giving over of our lives to idols, false gods, things that look good on the surface, things that promise everything but deliver on nothing. Again, things that are smaller than God. And so John, he's writing and saying, my little children, I want to spare you this hardship. I want to spare you this hardship. And I want you to understand that the law of God and the priority of God and the will of God, it's not some straitjacket. It's not some killjoy. It's ultimately the path to a, a true and, and, and well-rounded, uh, abundant, flourishing life. And again, remember the context that John here is speaking to people who are in the throes of this Gnostic movement. Again, a movement that has denied the reality of anything physical. And so they've also then denied the reality of sin. They've kind of you know, rationalized it and philosophized it away. And again, over and above this, John teaches us that no, sin is very real. Instead of pretending it's not, instead of deluding ourselves and you know, thinking that we're not sinning, uh, it's a real thing. But we're called to flee it. We're called, to the best of our abilities, to, to run from it, to fight against it. Again, to flee it. But if that's the will of God, if that's the, the goal of God, it's the goal of John here as, as God's apostle, if the goal is for us to flee sin and to fight sin, to not sin, what have we also come to realize, though? We've come to realize that none of us are actually hitting that goal. None of us are actually hitting that mark, that we can't reach that goal in our own strength. And so before we conclude that John is just this kind of old man who's off his rocker, you know, giving us misleading counsel, thankfully he continues. He continues. And what does he tell us? That if anyone does sin, this is now the end of verse 1, if anyone does sin, in, order, in other words, when we fail to reach that goal, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the Righteous. We have an advocate. So if there's the goal, the second word is that there's then good news. A phrase, two words. There's a goal, but we're not making that goal on our own. Thankfully, then there's good news. There's good news. And I, I love how sort of understated this is on the part of John. There's a, this is beautifully understated, and it's understated because of that one word, that small word, that two-letter word. What's that word? If. <laughs> If, but if anyone does sin, 
I love how understated it is because that little if, oh, it just so happens to include every single person who's ever lived, right? This is like McDonald's, you know, calling themselves like a little hamburger stand, you know, a little hamburger shack. Remember when McDonald's used to put on their signs, billions and billions served? I don't know if you remember that at all, underneath the golden arches, okay? What an understatement. McDonald's, whoa, this is a huge corporation, all right? Well, here's John. If anyone does sin, if you've ever had a single evil thought, a single evil intention, a single evil word or deed, if you're not perfect down to your core, what hope do we have then? Well, we have here an advocate. We have an advocate. And that advocate is available to everybody. And again, this is sort of a, we don't really realize it at first glance, but this is a, a little jab, again, to the thinking of the day. Because in Gnosticism, there was this understanding, like I've mentioned in previous weeks, that those who are truly enlightened, those who are truly found to be you know, in the favor of the supreme being, who have attained this special knowledge and who are enlightened, like I said, that this is just a very select few. That only a few people have actually reached that, you know, that level of understanding. But here in the gospel, what are we told? That we're in this thing together. <laughs> There's no exceptions. That no one has escaped the indictment of God. That no one has escaped the guilty verdict. That no one on their own actually has obtained some kind of get-a-jail-free you know, hall pass or, or attained some kind of special enlightenment. But that everybody is failing the mark. No one's cutting it. But the beauty of the gospel is on the other side, it doesn't tell us to despair. This understanding that we're not making the goal then helps us to look outside of ourselves, to look outside of our own righteousness to the help of another. Namely, in this text, to an advocate. What is an advocate? What is an advocate? Think in the legal courts, think in the, in the, in the real world, right? What is an advocate? An advocate is somebody who does something for you that you can't do yourself, who acts on your behalf. And here we're told that we have the greatest of all possible advocates, Christ Jesus, the righteous. The righteous. And notice how those titles are linked that we as sinners who aren't making the mark can trust Jesus to act on our behalf. We can trust Jesus to advocate for us because where we were unrighteous, he was righteous. And so now he's able to present that record before the judge, again, think in legal terms, before the judge in place of our record. And we know that's the gospel. That's the basic truth of the gospel, but what a reality it is. He's now qualified to advocate for us because of his righteousness compared to our unrighteousness. And I think what's also amazing about this term is that there's a lot of comfort here. Because the term here for advocate is paraclete. Paraclete in the Greek. And you'll know maybe perhaps that John in his gospel uses that same word to also describe the Holy Spirit. And that's amazing. Because you see it now, him apply it to both persons, if you will, of the Trinity. And here, here's why that's important. Because you're told that you have an advocate both in the heavens, Christ Jesus the righteous, who is sitting next to the Father on his right hand, and you also have an advocate here on earth, within you, the Holy Spirit. 
And so that's this amazing reality that when we despair in our sin, when we despair in our missing of the mark, our missing of the goal, the Holy Spirit ministers with inside of us. He advocates with inside of us and reminds us that we have an advocate with the Father who is presenting his righteousness for us. And so again, in those moments where we sin, that big if, we don't you know, feel like God's love has been lost. We don't feel like we've now been kicked out of the family. But we remember we still have the Spirit within us, encouraging us, reminding us that yes, our sin is not good, but it hasn't forfeited the love of Christ Jesus, our greater advocate in the heavens. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that John's painting for us here. Uh, There's a great hymn that sums this up. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what it means to have an advocate. That's the good news. There's a goal. There's the good news. And then thirdly, we're called to go. Look again in verse 2. Jesus, this advocate, our righteousness, our Savior, he is the propitiation, big word there, propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only. He's also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. As you know, that word propitiate means to turn aside, to block, really, if you will, the wrath of God. We're told elsewhere in the scriptures, I'm thinking here in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is coming on sin. We're told that. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the just penalty for sin. But Jesus, the propitiator, he blocks the wrath of God that our sin deserves when we put our trust in him. But here, what we're told is that this grace that's become available to us is available not just to us, but to the whole world. To the whole world. And so what does that mean for us? It means we got to go. we got to go tell. I mean, think about how excited we get when like a new restaurant opens up. I'm on top of that list, right? you got to try this new taco restaurant, this new whatever, this new Greek restaurant. I want to tell everybody, right? It's not just my own personal chef, although that'd be nice. You can go too. It's available to you too. Think then of the gospel. How much more do we have to offer? Do we have to tell? But we got to go. We got to go tell. And again, thinking of that legal term, if again, Jesus, Jesus is our advocate, our righteousness, what a great opposite picture this is too of how the grace works. Because in the legal circle, you only have access to the greatest of attorneys. You only have access to the you know, high-profile advocate if what? If you're the cream of the crop, baby, right? If you're 
wealthy and powerful and influential, then you can avail yourselves of the greater attorney, the greater advocate, whatever it might be. But here, what does the text say? This advocate, this righteous one, not just for you only, not just for me, for everybody. For everybody. For the sins of the whole world. And again, think of Gnosticism back in that day. Only a select few, only an enlightened few, only a few are going to you know, cut it, if you will. Again, the gospel says what Christ offers, what grace he offers, is so much bigger than that. So much more generous than that. It's for everybody. So we've got to go tell. We've got to go tell. And I was thinking this week, you know, here at Lake Osborne, there's so much to do. There's so much we could be doing. There's so many good things that I want to tackle that we want to put on our shoulders. There's so many needs that need to be met. But I was thinking, you know, it's redundant in some ways, but if we're going to be about one thing here at Lake Osborne, if we're going to hang our hat on one job description for our church, it's got to be this. It's got to be this. That there's other places that can offer a lot of things, but we're the only institution, the church, that can offer this message of grace, this message of the gospel. And so that's what we've got to be doing. That's where, that's where our time has to be spent. That's where our priority has to be. And that's where we need you as a congregation to tell people, to tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your coworkers. I'm going to keep preaching it. Okay, I promise that. I'm going to keep saying it. All right? But we've got to bring them in to hear it. We've got to bring them in. And we've got to go out. That message and that message alone. Again, the goal, the good news, we're called to go and then finally, lastly, we're called here to grow, to grow. Look in verses 3 through 6. John gives us this challenging but helpful sort of litmus test, if you will. By this, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, John tells us that we should be growing as his followers. We should be growing. But before we you know, think that John is just giving us this new checklist or this new kind of moral uh, to-do list, what does he mean by commandments? If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Well, thankfully, he answers that for us later in the letter. If you take your Bible real quick, uh, flip over to chapter 3. Chapter 3. If you look in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another, just as he commanded us. See, this is the growing that John has in mind. An increasingly deeper belief in the gospel and an increasingly wider love for people. 
an increasingly deeper belief in the gospel, and an increasingly wider love for people. Isn't it amazing that John doesn't have to list here all the things that we shouldn't be doing? He doesn't do that. And that's amazing because, as you know, so often in the church, we default to that. To be a real Christian, you can't do this. To be a real Christian, you can't look like that. To be a real Christian, you can't X, Y, Z, right? John doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says to be a real Christian, to be a growing Christian, you keep his commandments. What are his commandments? To believe in the Son and to love one another. And you see, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to list out all these do's and don'ts because at the end of the day, Anytime we fail, anytime we fall back into a habit or a temptation or a sin, or we, do, we, we do what we know we shouldn't be doing, at its root, in that moment, is simply a failure to believe we have everything we need in Jesus. And we're looking to that thing, that substance, that person, that whatever, to give it to us instead. And so John is saying, to grow You grow deeper in your belief that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he he said he did, and that Jesus is truly everything, that he's all satisfying. But then secondly, he says when we realize that, we focus on Christ, and we, we realize how short we're falling, how many times we're still prone to run to other things, and how often we still need him and his grace, What does that then do for our relationships with other people? It makes us more gracious. It makes us more patient. And our love then for each other becomes wider. It becomes wider. It becomes less judgmental. It becomes less critical. It becomes more embracing and all-encompassing. You see, if we're going to measure our lives against something, that's what John tells us to do. Are we falling more deeply in love with Jesus? Are we ever more mindful of how much we need him? That's Christian growth. You don't move past Jesus. You move deeper into your realization that you need Jesus. And then secondly, are we loving people with a wider love, a more embracing love because of that love that God's shown to us? But finally, and I'll I'll close with this, in those moments where we're doing neither, <laughs> in those moments where we're, we're striking out and we're not believing like we should, not loving like we should, that's where the first part of this section has to be our counsel, that we still have our advocate. We still have Jesus Christ, who did follow and trust the Father without exception, never wavering, and who did love everyone he encountered with no exceptions, with an unflinching love. And that perfection in both areas is still our righteousness. It's still been given to us. It's still credited to our account until that glorious day when we see him face to face and we finally have grown up into the person that he's even now beginning to make us to be. The song continues, or behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. 
with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its power in our lives, the fact that it still speaks thousands of years later. And we pray, Lord, that your word would do its convicting work in our hearts where we need that, but that it would also do its encouraging work, the binding up of wounds where we need that as well. And we pray ultimately that we would leave here having focused on that word who became flesh, Christ Jesus, our righteousness, our advocate, the one who has secured your love for us. So we thank you and praise you in his name and his name alone. Amen.